Scientists tell us that for those of us who live north of the equator, that this Saturday, December 21st, is the shortest day and therefore the longest night of the year as we experience what they refer to as the winter solstice. Now, every child knows that December 21st is not the longest night of the year. That occurs three days later on December 24th, Christmas Eve. Am, am I right? I, some of my, my most precious memories are nights with my younger brother on Christmas Eve waiting and waiting and waiting for the time to open presents. When we were in grade school, we lived in Ada, and we shared a bedroom. We had bunk beds, and we would always go to bed early that night. Our thinking was, the quicker we fell asleep, the quicker Santa would arrive, and it would be time to open presents. And I can remember a Christmas or two when uh, we woke up at like one in the morning and would get up and kind of peek, and we'd say, well, Mom and Dad get on to us if we start opening gifts? And a couple of times, we were hushed, shut back to bed, you know. Then when we moved out to Bing, and we had our own bedrooms, which was a pretty big deal for a couple of brothers, uh, on Christmas Eve, we would usually sleep together because we were going to get up together. I couldn't let him beat me up into the living room. And uh, he didn't want me to do the same uh, to him. So, it, it, you know, you wait and you wait and you wait. A few years ago, an organization, uh, Priority Management Incorporated, did, did a study. And I'm not sure what all went into this study. But they determined that in a typical lifetime, a person spends five and a half years waiting now, in my own independent study, I've determined that five of those five and a half occurs at Walmart. <laughs> I'm not sure how scientific my study is, but we wait and we wait and we wait. And as we wait, sometimes we might ask, is it worth waiting? Have you ever been in a line, a long line, and finally just give up and say, forget it, I'm doing something else? I mean, that, that probably happens to us every week. But are there some things in life that are worth waiting for? And I think we would all agree that yes, there are some things. You know, when you look at Scripture... When you begin in Genesis and read all the way through the maps, as Brother Abe Lincoln of the Sunset School of Preaching used to say, we encounter great men and women of faith who waited. And the challenge for them was often they were waiting on God. And Luke begins his gospel with two such people that we know as Zechariah and Elizabeth, the elderly couple who would become the parents of John the Baptist. They knew 
what it meant to wait. And so this morning, we're going to look at their story. So if you brought your New Testament today, turn to Luke chapter 1, and here in a minute, we're going to begin looking at verses 5 through 25. Now, we just recently completed a series of sermons from the book of Acts. And I'm, I'm sure you remember when that series began back on Sunday, September 1st, we did not begin in Acts chapter 1, but we began in Luke chapter 1 with verses 1 through 4. That serves, those verses serve as a prologue, I believe, not only to Luke's gospel, but the book of Acts as well. And I'm not going to take time this morning to go back and read those four verses, but let me kind of quickly summarize what I shared back on September 1st. In Luke's prologue, you can make the case that Luke wrote his gospel and the book of Acts in four ways. First of all, he wrote as a historian. And because the Bible, the story that Luke tells is history, we need to know it and we need to share it. But he wrote a particular kind of story. It's God's story. And because of that, he also wrote as a theologian. And because Luke's gospel and the book of Acts and the rest of Scripture is theology, not only do we need to know it, we need to study it. We need to memorize it. We need to understand it. But not only did Luke write as a historian and a theologian, he also wrote as an apologist. In fact, he tells us in his prologue that he wrote to a certain man by the name of Theophilus. And we don't know for sure who Theophilus was, but Luke in his gospel and then the sequel, the book of Acts, he seems to defend Jesus and defend the beginning of Christianity. And so because it is an apology, we must agree with it. We must also defend it. But finally, Luke wrote as an evangelist. It's not just a story. It's good news. In fact, it is great news. And so because it's good news, because it's urgent news, we not only need to share it, we need to shout it. His story must become our story. And everyone we encounter need to know that we believe in this story. And so we come to verse 5 in Luke chapter 1. And unlike Matthew, who begins his gospel with the angel appearing uh, to Mary and then to uh, Joseph, Luke begins his story, his narrative, with the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah. And his introduction to his gospel occurs in three scenes. Again, chapter 1, verses 5 through uh, 25. The first scene, verses uh, 5 through 7, we are introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. 
His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. In this introduction to Zechariah and Elizabeth, we learn three things about them. First of all, of their priestly pedigree. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, to the Law of Moses, we can read where priests were required to marry a virgin daughter of Israel. But Zechariah marries someone also of Aaronic uh, descent. And so uh, Zechariah and uh, Elizabeth uh, have Aaron as a forefather. And so their, their priestly pedigree is beyond reproach. But maybe more importantly is their character. Not only are they of both priestly descent, but they also follow God's law blamelessly. They are people of character, people of integrity. They are worthy of example. But, sadly to say, we also learn that they are childless. The assertion that they are righteous and blameless makes clear that their childlessness is not punishment from God, but as we will discover here in just a a minute, according to God's purpose. But this fact does present or introduce an inconsistency. Because God says through Moses in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 14 that none of your men or women will be childless. Zechariah and Elizabeth would have known that text. And so most likely in their minds, something is wrong. But the second scene begins uh, of this introduction in verse 8 when Gabriel... The angel from God appears to Zechariah. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord." He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people for the Lord. Zechariah asks the angel, 
how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. There were 24 orders or divisions of priests. Each order served twice a year in the temple for one week at a time, and a priest, if chosen, could offer the incense only once in his lifetime. So here is Zechariah in the latter stages of his life. And for his entire life, he had been fulfilling his duties as a priest. And finally, the lot fell on him to go inside where others were unable to go and to offer the incense before the Lord on behalf of the people. And so it was an exciting time. We can only imagine the nervousness uh, that that, uh, Zechariah must have felt, Uh, the excitement even of finally being chosen. And Gabriel then appears and announces to Zechariah the birth of a son who would fulfill a vital role in God's scheme of redemption. And as we read, in all of the excitement and in all of the nervousness, Zechariah doubts and asks for a sign. And he is struck dumb. And for about nine months or so, is unable to speak. I love how uh, one commentator in uh, discussing this talks about when uh, Zechariah then goes out before the people and they cannot, uh, he cannot speak. He begins motioning with signs. It may be the first example in the Bible of the game of charades as he tries to explain to them all that he has experienced with this encounter with Gabriel. And then finally, scene 3, in verses 23 through 25. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. It is not clear why Elizabeth hid herself for five months. Perhaps she waited until all would notice that she was pregnant. When the baby bump began to show, in, in all of the disappointment, in all of the discouragement, in all of the doubt, hope has been fulfilled. And she steps forth into the public for the first time, and we can only imagine 
the rejoicing. We, we experience that today when someone we know and love uh, is pregnant with a, with a child and we hear of that news. Uh, the, the verb that is translated in the NIV as show his favor uh, is, is literally to look upon, to look upon with care, to regard in a very special way. And so here Elizabeth and, of course, Zechariah realize that God has shown his favor upon them. Well, when you think about this story about Elizabeth and Zechariah, and, and particularly when you reflect upon their character, their commitment to obeying God's law, and again, years and years as a married couple asking God for a child, and in all the years of disappointment and perhaps uh, doubt, to maybe, as we reflect upon that, to ask this one very tough, difficult question. Despite disappointment, will we remain committed to God? None of us are exempt from disappointment. None of us are exempt from discouragement. I would, I would even venture to say that, that most of us, at some point in our walk with the Lord, have had a doubt or two, a question arise in our mind. And, and again, when you look at Scripture, and, and you see all the great men and women of faith, many of whom did experience tremendous disappointment, discouragement, Despair, loneliness, asking those very difficult questions in life, and yet remained faithful, yet remained committed and trusting in their God. And so I want to suggest this morning uh, five lessons that we might learn as we uh, think about Zechariah and Elizabeth. First of all, Sometimes, sometimes righteous people face disappointment in their lives. Sometimes righteous people have doubts about God. And, and I, would, I would argue that uh, uh, doubt is different than unbelief. That, that doubt can be something in which God uses to strengthen us. And I, I don't know in the past that we've always been comfortable with doubt because often we have taken it as, as a lapse or um, a, a point of disbelief in our lives. I, I, I've talked, I've talked to, to a number of people, particularly younger people, who raise questions, those hard, difficult questions, questions that may not have any answers this side of heaven. Or at least answers that are easy to grasp and explain and accept. And, and because of those questions, because of those doubts, uh, they, they have just turned away. And, and I, I think we, we live in such an age, we, we need to appreciate that curiosity 
and appreciate those doubts and wrestle with those folks. I believe that's what Elizabeth and Zechariah were doing. I, I can only imagine as, as their years continued and time progressed, being in the presence of other couples who maybe had five, six, seven, who, who knows how many children, and, and doubting their own character, perhaps doubting their own faith. And so many of us will experience that as well. But number two, but righteous people refuse to become bitter in their lives. We, we know that is the case with Zechariah and Elizabeth because of the character, the way they lived their lives continuously. You know, Zechariah at this point could have said, you know, I'm too old. I, I'm too old anymore to go up to Jerusalem and fulfill my week of service. You know, God, God's not listening to me anyway. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He continued to remain faithful. He continued to serve his God. Number three, an encounter with the divine is meant to shake us up. If you go back to verse 13, excuse me, verse 12, when Gabriel first appears uh, to Zechariah. Zechariah is pretty typical of other people we read about in Scripture that encounter an angel from God. And the NIV says he was startled. I love, I love that word because it refers to someone or to something that has been shaken, that has been stirred, whose circumstance is being turned upside down, we might say. I, I mean, I mean think, think about maybe a, a time in your life when you encountered something that, as we used to say, just scared the socks off of you. But maybe you've encountered a snake before that way. Like lifting up a pillow and finding a shed snake skin when your wife and your first child are at the hospital in Paris, Texas. And so you call the snake patrol and say, listen, get over here and get rid of this snake. Snake patrol consisted of Jay Cannon, John Cannon, Jay Spencer, few other members of the youth group, and we had to get permission from my landlord to bust open a wall to get this snake. But I was startled. I was shaken, and I needed help. And so here is Zechariah, and he is fulfilling his duty. He is in a worship context. He's made himself available for this encounter with Gabriel, an angel from God. And so the, the point I would make is when we assemble together corporately, uh, our, our purpose is to worship, our purpose is to praise, our purpose is to remember, it's to reflect, and that's going to be point four, by the way. But we come together to encounter God. Jack Reese used to say from Abilene Christian University that if you don't encounter God when you assemble to worship, you haven't worshipped. And so it doesn't matter if Stephen is always on pitch 
And so it shouldn't matter if the sermon is quite up to what your quality is or not. It shouldn't really matter if the sound system works or not. It shouldn't really matter if the temperature is just right for you. When we come together, putting ourselves in a position, in a place with with other Christians to encounter God, to be startled, to be stirred up in some kind of way, just as Zechariah made himself available on this occasion. But number four, read, remember, reflect, rejoice. Greg, this portion of our sermon brought to us by the letter R. R. When we read stories like this, when we open up God's Word, and we are called to remember, to reflect on the faithfulness of God and the trustworthiness of God, it's, it's, interesting, uh, it's interesting to me, maybe you have this footnote in your Bible, that Zechariah means the Lord remembers. And, and maybe for the first time in his life, he reflected upon his own name. And, and he, he is now realizing that God has remembered him. Memory is a trait of God. And and one of the things that we are called to do as God's people today is to remember. We we seem to remind ourselves of that when we particularly assemble around uh, the Lord's table to partake of the Lord's Supper. But but I, I believe the minute we step into this place, we need to start remembering and reflecting. And it's something that we do not just on Sunday but 24-7. And as we recall, and as we reflect, and as we remember, and particularly to think about God's faithfulness, to then be able to rejoice, regardless of what our circumstance might be. And then finally, number five. And, And this is really the whole point, or the primary point, I think, from the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Waiting becomes a primary activity of the faithful. Even though, in the words of Tom Petty, waiting is the hardest part. It is. I, I know of no one that really enjoys waiting for anything. And so this morning... Claim Psalm 27, 14. Here's what it says. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. If you have um, an Old Testament word study book, spend some time with this word translated wait. It is used throughout the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite Hebrew words. It's used throughout the book of Psalms and particularly the prophets. And and depending on the translation and kind of depending on the context, this word can be translated not only as wait, but also as hope. 
trust. And so this verse could read, hope for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and hope for the Lord. Or, or it could go this way, trust the Lord. Be strong and take heart and trust the Lord. It's the same word that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 40, verse 31. For those who wait or hope or trust in the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles. You ever seen an eagle in flight? That promise is for us. I appreciated uh, Stephen's Wednesday night lesson in the outreach building concerning Advent and uh, maybe introducing us to this uh, term or this concept. I was telling him this morning, to be honest, I was a little disappointed. You remember he asked if anyone had ever heard a lesson or a comment about Advent, and I kind of looked around, because last year, one of my points in my first Christmas sermon was about Advent. And nobody raised their hand. And Stephen told me this morning that even he remembers Patrick talking some about Advent. So in case you weren't here Wednesday night and you don't remember uh, point one last year of the ABCs of Christmas, A stood for Advent. The word Advent is a Latin word meaning an arrival or coming, especially one which is awaited. And it's used today primarily in two contexts. As Stephen brought out Wednesday night, many Christian traditions follow a church year or a liturgical calendar. And Advent is the first season of the year and begins on the Sunday nearest November 30th and ends on Christmas Eve. So specifically, Advent refers to the initial coming of Jesus to this earth to provide salvation by his life, death, and resurrection. But it's also used in a second context. Because there will be another arrival or coming or advent of Jesus. He has promised that he would come again. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, that's the word, Latin word advent, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Again, I'm reading from the NIV. The word they translate as continue is one of John's favorite words. He uses it over and over again in his gospel in the three letters that he wrote, and in the book of Revelation. And if you do a word study of that word, some English translations choose the word abide, persist, remain, or wait. And so even though waiting is the hardest part, waiting for the second coming of Jesus I hope we'll all agree, is well worth the wait. And so this Christmas, as we reflect upon Jesus' 
birth and his first advent. Let's not forget, he has promised to come again. And that second advent, that second coming, should provide motivation to us to be just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, to live obedient, faithful lives. Are you ready for the second coming? Are you ready for that second advent? Are you ready for that second appearance of Jesus? Let's stand and sing.